from the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia to around the globe. You're listening to Shark Bite Biz, your exclusive place for business strategy, sales, marketing, and tech in the roaring 20s. And now, here's your host, David Strausser. Welcome to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your host, David Strausser. This is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete chaos. Another great episode for you all today. One of the last few episodes we have in our bank where my microphone is jacked up during the interview itself. Apologize for that. Bear with us all. These were such amazing episodes that I couldn't just scratch them all. It all happened in a day, two-day period where I was recording in a Zoom configuration got messed up. We've tried to fix them as much as possible. Some of them turned out better than others. This one's pretty decent, but we only have one more after this one coming out like that. And I've been mixing in some newer ones that are fixed as well, too, to try to make that easier for y'all. So again, please bear with us. We're almost done. Enjoy the interview. Listen to the guests and what they have to say because they have some incredible knowledge that they're sharing with us. Remember, you can join the channel. Yeah, you can become a baby shark on YouTube for only $3 a month, okay? Now, if donating money through big tech isn't your thing, don't worry. I understand. And we got your back too. Go to deadhousecoffee.com. Use code SHARK. You're going to get 20% off your order, okay? And all the proceeds directly help support this channel. Why? Well, because Shark Bite Biz owns Dead House Coffee. It is my coffee shop, and we put that out there to try to monetize to get the funds to continue producing this show and getting the word out advertisement during the pandemic is not cheap and in fact we just had an episode on that where the advertising costs are going to keep going up because everybody's using it it is in demand and it is really the only successful avenue to advertise shows right now So anyways, let's get back to today's show. We have a great show today about startups and the startup community. We're going to be discussing surviving a startup and everything entrepreneurs need to overcome with those impossible odds that they face. We're going to talk about how our guest lost over $9 million. Yes, I said million dollars. Dollars, nine, nine million dollars. That's insane. How he walked away from a seven million dollar investment. And then he even turned down a 60 million dollar acquisition offer. And if that's not enough, you'll also hear about how Disney ended up saving him from a major lawsuit as well. All that goes into the life of being in the startup world, right? So who is today's guest? Steve Hoffman. Steve Hoffman, or 
Captain Hoff, as he's called in Silicon Valley, is the chairman and CEO of Founder Space, one of the world's leading incubators and accelerators. He's also an angel investor, a limited partner at August Capital, serial entrepreneur, and author of several award-winning books. These include Make Elephants Fly, published by Hatchet, and Surviving a Startup, published by Harper Collins. So hey, without further delay, let's bring Steve, or I guess I should say, let's bring Captain Hoff on in here. Business strategy. Steve, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became shark bait. Oh no, I'm swimming as fast as I can. Well, you're a captain, so that shouldn't be that bad. Yeah, but apparently the ship's gone and the sharks are attacking. <laughs> yes, we are. Yes, we are. So, you know, we have a tradition here on the show since the very first interview. I always ask the same question to every single person. It's the only real standardized question we have. And that is, what's your background? What's your experience? How did you get to where you're at? Tell us your, your journey to starting a startup and you know just tell us in a nutshell what makes well, steve steve that's a saga actually <laughs> it, i have i have had more careers than cats have had lives if that gives you any idea you know i have so at least I 10 uh, yes at least 10 yeah so <laughs> i started out very passionate about making games and movies when I was a kid. So mm -hmm. all I did, like I was a game and movie nerd. And then uh, my dad, I wanted to go to film school, but my dad yeah. said, he's an MIT rocket scientist. He said, computers are the future, son. You must study computers. So I listened to my dad because he's a smart guy. Mm -hmm. I went to electrical computer engineering, got a degree in that, uh, had all these job offers, but turned them down and went to graduate school in film and television. Wow. And then, yeah, I graduated with my MFA from USC in film and television production. And I went out into the big, uh, boisterous world of Hollywood, uh, landed. I wrote 150 letters to top movie executives, got three responses. One wow. was the producer of Star Wars. He came to me. He called me up. Star, producer, Star Wars? Like, I'm not uh, familiar. Is that popular or something? Yeah. <laughs> as, as, as I'm asking with my Chewbacca mug. Yeah, Chewbacca. Yeah, so I got a call. I, you know, I'm a fan. Uh, we talked. He said, I have no doubt. I just thought your letter was really nice. And so we just had a conversation. The next one was Disney. Uh, they called me in. I totally blew the interview. Uh, when they asked me, like, what kind of films are you passionate about? I didn't say Disney movies. Mm -hmm. And at that time, most Disney movies were kids' movies. Right. And I just started rambling off all these things you see in film school, these amazing movies. And by the end of the interview, they were like, you're not for us. So oh, yes. I kind of learned my lesson there. You know, it doesn't pay to be honest in Hollywood. Uh, I got my third interview. Uh, it was a TV production company. and. Uh, called Freeze Entertainment, right across the street from Man Chinese Theater. And okay. they brought me in there and they offered me the glorious job of being a reader. That's where you read piles of scripts. Wow. <laughs> but but within, uh, uh, you know, it's a, I'll cut the story short, but within 
you know, one month I had actually gotten promoted to development uh, director. So I was in charge of their all their film development. It went real. It was an amazing opportunity. That's I did great. that for a year. Then I met the founder of Sega, Japanese uh, video game company. Yeah, and I yeah. told you I was into games, and I wasn't really making movies at this television production company. I was just greenlighting them. So I was just like getting scripts from agents, and I was kind of the middleman. So I was like, "That's not what I want to do. But I want to be creative." So I. Uh, I met the founder of Sega, who's an American, although it's a Japanese company. Mm -hmm. he, I told him all these games I had made, and he said, okay, I'm flying you to our headquarters in Tokyo. You can design games for us. So, boom. Wow. Yeah, I was well, in Japan. Designing, designing a game, I mean, it, it embraces tech that you have that tech experience, right? But it also embraces a lot i i think of the storyboard type movie thing too because games mostly are uh, at least back then like a, a, a story kind of like a chronological movie in a way no so i designed lots of games i was totally into board games so i designed yeah. like a hundred different board games wow. um and then uh, I also made my own computer games. I coded them myself. So I was telling him about what the future computer games I wanted to make. And he's like, oh, come over to Sega. We need, we want somebody from Hollywood there. And I was like, great, you know, kind of a dream job. So I went to their headquarters, worked on all these different games. It was a really amazing experience. And then I decided after one year, I'm very impatient. I was like, I want to have my own game company. Like, I want to do this myself. Why can I work for them? So I moved back to... Uh, California and landed in Silicon Valley, started my own game company called Lava Mine. And my first game was called Gazillionaire, which is all about how to be an entrepreneur, ironically, yeah. what I teach today. <laughs> and that game became a hit, was a big hit. Um, it's still selling today. It's on Steam, Gazillionaire, and all, all these games we made. And I just went from when, there. I did. When did uh, Gazillionaire come out originally? Well, it was like 1994. Wow, <laughs> that long ago. Yeah, okay. it was. Wow. That dates me. That dates me. So no, that's fine. That's fine. I, I I'm just trying to figure out because you said that it's still for sale on Steam. So I was thinking, okay, maybe early 2000s, but I didn't expect 94. I mean, that puts you like OG it was status in video games. We we, when we sold our first game, we physically, we put our, 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 our code, you know, our game executable mm -hmm. on the internet, the early internet, a BBS. Mm -hmm. Most people don't even know what it is, but we put it out there. Somebody downloaded it. It was Lord Gek. Lord Gek <laughs> had to be a super geek because nobody else was on there at the time. Yeah. He downloaded it. He sent us actual cash in the mail. For the game, you know, wow. fifteen dollars in the mail. We have our first fifteen dollars. We mailed him floppy disks by all wow. things through the mail, and he got to play the full version of Gazillionaire. So that That's started awesome. my first comp. That was my first company. The game ended up getting picked up by Microprose Spectrum Hall. By they make like all these classic games like Civilization. So they put it in all the stores. Went from there. We did really well. We made a whole series of games. Then the internet came along. I jumped on the internet with some friends of mine. We mm -hmm. created uh, some of the early uh, gaming applications, chat gaming. And then we segued 
into interactive television, launched this company called Spider Dance, did all these deals with TV networks because that was my other background, you know, with NBC, you know, Turner Broadcasting, Warner Brothers, all of them, you know, Viacom and, you know, all, all these different companies launched all these interactive TV game shows where we did the whole gaming part online. Mm -hmm. And then that was my first venture funded startup. And then I went and did some other venture funded startups. And after my third one, I launched Founderspace, which is this company here I'm in front yeah. of. And all, all my friends are coming to my gamer can't handle is Captain Hoff. So that became my nickname <laughs> because I'm a gamer. And they're all, Captain Hoff, help me with my business plan. How did you raise all that money? Do. And that Founderspace is basically a startup incubator and accelerator. Uh, and now we're global. We have you know over 50 mm -hmm. partners in 22 countries and we work with entrepreneurs. And so that's, that's a short, concise version. I left out my career in anime and a whole bunch of other <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but I won't exactly. even go into that. No, that's fine. I mean, I, it's really cool because that's one of the things that we like to highlight on the show is career transformation. Because a lot of people go to school for one thing and then they find out, like, that's not really what I want to do. Or maybe they did love doing it for so many years, but it's like, now my passions change and I need to do something else. So hearing a story like yours, one that is successful of how you kind of hopped around, changed careers to get to where you're at. I mean, it's inspiring. And, you know, congrats on you for really following your heart and your passion to make what you love your actual business. Now, since you're a gamer at heart, I, I've got to ask you some questions about the, the game industry. You okay with that? Oh, by all means. I, I lived and breathed it. So I we've always had the newest version of Xbox. And honestly, I mean, every time a new one comes out, we've always bought it up until the, the latest version I protested. And I'll explain why in a minute. But... Uh, I, you know, essentially the nobody was playing it. My, my 17, almost 18 year old who produces our episodes, actually, he just straight PC gaming anymore. Uh, my other kids are just too young, not really into Xbox itself. So I had it for me just to play Madden football once a year for probably 50 matches and that's it. And it's an expensive piece of hardware to use so limitedly. So, I have actually recently got back into gaming using Google Stadia because I oh, yeah. love bleeding edge tech and what they're bringing, the way that it integrates to YouTube. Like you do crowd choice. Say I'm playing Dead by Daylight and I'm streaming it live. You can have the people that are watching the stream pick which character you're going to be. Or you could do live stage share if you're playing a game like Hitman to where I put a link and you click on the link and you get into the same exact environment I am so that that way you can try to beat it with, I mean, it, it's so innovative and it, it, it's, to me, it's incredible and mind blowing. I think the cloud gaming is the future of video games itself and that any console right now purchasing is almost like buying a legacy piece of hardware right out of the gate. What's your thought on that? Well, my thought is it's 
every time you buy any piece of hardware, whether it's a, a gaming console, your yes. phone, whatever it is, it's a legacy by the, you know, the day you buy yeah. it, it's a legacy. It is the last. They are going to come up with something better. And we've all seen the massive move to the cloud of all applications and services. Everything is going on to the cloud. So it's only natural that gaming should be on the cloud and you should be able to play, you know, even, you know, our PCs that we have today, we don't, shouldn't really have them. They should be entirely cloud-based devices. You know, that's right. where it's going. We just well, got to get, Amazon, you know, for five, example, has that with their workspaces that you're able to, to do. And that's exactly almost how Stadia is as well, too, because essentially, instead of having a local piece of hardware, I mean, you're gaming on a... Google super server in the cloud that's streaming the game just like Netflix and to get around latency when you use their Stadia controllers, this actually, once you connect it to Wi-Fi, it's connecting directly to the server where your game is to cut out the latency and it, it, the whole thing's awesome. I think that's the future. I've been wanting to get a virtual desktop even just for the production of this TV show, because right now with our hardware, we're kind of capped at doing 1440p. But I can record 4K, 60 frames per second, but it would take us forever to render each video. So I've been looking at getting a virtual workstation that we're able to produce the videos on. Yep. And and that will be, you know, it's I it's just around the corner, all this technology. It's coming really fast. So yeah, I spent my life actually like researching technology, working mm -hmm. with the entrepreneurs making it. It's uh, that's what's so fascinating. Is mm -hmm. things are accelerating. And you know, in the not too distant future, we won't even be using PCs or phones. We'll be using right. brain computer interfaces. Like those are oh, being developed right, right now. And yeah, Neuralink, but but it's not just Elon Musk. I mean, there yeah. are literally you know, hundreds of people out there developing different things. And it's not just the hardware. What's really going to break through is the software, a brain operating system. Instead of iOS, you'll have a BOS. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's coming for around the corner. People, I tell you, for I some people, it'll just be BS. Yeah, BS. <laughs> <laughs> so exactly. Your, your founder space, what kind of startups are you looking for? Are you looking like for, you know, hardware, software, you know, what, what's the specialty? Because I've heard when I was, I was big in the San Diego startup community uh, before I started my current job, Vision 33. So maybe about six, seven years ago, I was really big down there in San Diego and you know, it's almost like the hardware people were, they weren't shunned, but they were like on the side. It was all about web development, software, those types of things that they didn't have hardware components to it. How do you, you view that? What do you focus on? So we focus on all new technology. So okay. uh, in incubators in different countries focus on different things. So some of our incubators focus on AI, others focus on the internet of things, others mm -hmm. focus more on biotech. Um, we invest uh, in blockchain. Oh, you know, really, we're always looking for what's coming, what's coming next, not mm -hmm. what we've already seen. So my right. job, like I spent before the pandemic, I spent 70% of my time traveling the globe, like looking, working with researchers, working with entrepreneurs and other venture mm -hmm. capitalists to figure out 
where the breakthroughs are coming and what we can invest in. Now, now you brought up a hot topic right there, blockchain, okay? Blockchain is something that I think most people associate with crypto coming out of there. I know there are companies, I believe uh, Walmart, I might be mistaken on that, that's using blockchain to track inventory. Is blockchain going to be a bigger part of our future? Well, I will tell you, people compare blockchain to AI, let's say. They're very mm -hmm. different. So AI is sort of a universal utility. You can apply AI to almost any business on the planet or any problem we have in our lives, and it can make uh, it can solve problems, basically make it smarter. Whatever devices we have, whatever online services mm -hmm. we have, you can make them smarter with AI. It's incredibly powerful in that way. Now, blockchain is a much narrower technology. It was designed mm -hmm. with cryptocurrency in mind. So mm -hmm. it was designed to do one thing extremely well. Now, in, a, in the US, and I write about this like in Make Elephants Fly, my book on innovation. Uh, yeah. In the US, we have applied blockchain to a lot of problems. Like the top corporations, they were... They were taking blockchain and trying to solve logistics problems and all these different problems. What they mm -hmm. ended up discovering was that 99% of those applications that they apply blockchain to, it wasn't the best solution. It's like wow. trying to hammer in a nail with a screwdriver, right? The screwdriver right. is good at what screwdrivers do, not at everything. So um, certain of these were much better off with centralized database. You know, decentralized yeah. system is really good for like managing a currency independent of a government or right. you know, like that, but it's not necessarily good for all the different problems you have in the world. However, yeah. the things that blockchain is good at, it's it's very good at, and other databases, other technologies cannot do. So we're right. seeing like a huge boom right now. Cryptocurrencies are still going strong. Oh, um, yeah. We also see N NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Yes, <laughs> non-fungible tokens selling for millions and dollars it's insane i think that is crazy i am not big on the nfts however i do own strausser.crypto and i own uh, strausser.eth and i also got i thought this was cool i got my own vanity yes. uh crypto wallet address as well too which is uh pay me your dot crypto <laughs> so you're in the game. Um, yeah. yeah, but I would agree with you. Uh, the NFTs are you know, a, a, a classic cape of hype over substance. That's not to say the blockchain and uh, you know having ownership on the blockchain isn't valuable and won't mm -hmm. find uh, future uses that are incredibly important as we migrate everything, all our goods and services and our free time to the internet. Uh, it will be very valuable. But the, the fact that people are paying, you know, $69 million for a GIF uh, or a JPEG, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, re to me, it's, it's just ridiculous. ridiculous. Right, yeah. right. Because they yeah. don't even, I mean, they own that on the uh, blockchain, but I mean, it's like, they're not really owning the rights to it or anything no. else. And they, that could be they don't really, right? They, people get confused between copyright law and uh, the law for actually own, 
you know, uh, that mm -hmm. uh, licensing deal. Essentially, it's a licensing deal that gives you limited rights to own it on a specific blockchain, not every blockchain. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> on a specific one, you have the rights to own it. And you don't, the, the content itself, the image or video mm -hmm. or music file isn't even saved on the blockchain. It's right. actually saved on some server wherever it was uploaded. All you're getting for your money is a pointer is that to link? that server and a documentation saying you have the unique uh, version of this on this blockchain. Like, and, that's and what you get. <laughs> I mean, have you seen the stories about the disappearing NFTs? Because like, for oh, example, yeah. Yeah. they get the link and then all of a sudden it's been taken off of the site where it originally was and that link now leads to nothing. Right. That's basically it's pointing to a server. And if they pull the image off the server, it's gone. And that server right. can be controlled by anybody like some mm -hmm. random site where the the uh, owner originally uploaded it to. So right. and there's also and, fakes out there. Oh, there there's a lot definitely. of fakes. That People is the just, exact reason why I did not buy any NFTs. The only ones I've done again were the crypto addresses because of the fact that they're essentially um, like if you wanted to send me uh, Bitcoin, okay, for the address instead of a big long address uh, that you'd have to type in with all the. Now you just try, type and anybody out there wanting to try this, please feel free to do. Just send Strasser.crypto, goes right to me now. Yeah, they're going to be flooding you with cryptocurrency. I oh, imagine yeah. right now, every yeah. billions of dollars. So, billions but you're right. That has a that that has a definite utility value. So, when we invest mm -hmm. in the blockchain, we are not looking for hype. We are looking for real value. Like, if right. you're a customer like you, what value does it provide me? Like, it, does it provide me great entertainment value? Does it provide me great use of ease uh, ease of use? I think <laughs> I, I think by buying that domain, it created the the ease of use for me to where now yes. I have my own wallet. I think that was a smart purchase, especially because it was like, I think 40 or 50 bucks for me to get the domain. So I got one for, you know, crypto. And then I also have one for uh, Arethium as well too with the .eth. So I, I thought they were smart purchases on my side. Right. And th those make a lot of sense to us. So when we're it's investing, we really, we always look, whether it's the blockchain or any other technology, what does it do for the end user or the customer? Like mm -hmm. what, what value does it create in their life? Because at the end of the day, if it's not creating value, if it's just something cool that will, you know, a trend, a fad, then it won't last. There won't be, right. uh, it's not going to be a sustainable business. Oh yeah, so, definitely, definitely, it, definitely. So I want to take a chance to pivot here because I mean, we do have, you know, someone super talented and everything and crypto is really popular. So I'm glad that we talked about that right now. But I want to hear the story around how you dealt with losing $9 million. <laughs> That's not pretty. <laughs> so, you know, in my new book, Surviving a Startup, I write about a lot of stories and a lot of them are very painful. I call it mm -hmm. surviving a startup because like it's hard to survive. Like most yeah. startups fail. I suffered too. Like, you know, I've had successes and I'll, I've had failures. And I tell you, you learn a lot from the failures. Well, my first uh, venture funded startup was called Spider Dance. 
and it was the interactive TV company. And we had, you know, all the big networks as our mm -hmm. customers, like they were all on our platform to literally run shows. We were the king. Then we yeah. had a big buyout offer from a public company, which my venture capitalists advised me to turn down. They said, we're, you know, this is not, we could be worth so much more than, th than they're offering us. So of course, you know, being a first time like entrepreneur funded by venture capital, I said, yeah, let's turn it down. We're going for the gold. Literally six months later, the dot-com bubble burst. Everything oh. imploded. Like we, all the venture capital just dried up. And, and at the same time this happened, our customers all came back to us and said, we're cutting our interactive divisions. This interactive TV stuff is cool, but it's not essential for us. We're cutting this. We're, we're not going to pay you. So like our revenue mm -hmm. like went down to like nothing. And um, that was extremely painful. Now, at the time, how did I cope with it? Like with all entrepreneurs, you just, you're, you, if you forced to cope with it, or you could just walk away and forget about it, but I'm not that. Therapy. So yeah, <laughs> therapy. Yes. No, therapy. I, I didn't have therapy. What I did was I, I did something more important for me than therapy. Mm -hmm. I went to our creditors. So we had borrowed millions of dollars on top of our venture capital. Yeah. And I went to our creditors and I basically negotiated a deal where I would give them our IP, like give away our baby, like that we were working on for all these years, and they would forgive our debts. So we didn't have to go bankrupt. We just closed the uh, door. They got the IP. Yeah. We walked away. But it was a... Uh, personally, for me, and I, you know, right now that I teach and mentor entrepreneurs, I'm so glad I went through this because I know how the entrepreneur feels when things right. are tanking. And out you, of, you literally, have out to, you have to fail to know how to succeed. You do, and you have to, you know, all the great people who try great things mm -hmm. fail. At, at certain things. Like if you try enough stuff, you're going to fail. If you just try one thing and get lucky and then, then that's all you ever do, maybe you'll be a success. But try enough things that are cutting edge that are really pushing the limits, you've got to fail. Like that's oh, the yeah. nature of the beast. And so I learned, through, first of all, I did suffer depression. Like I won't, you know, sugarcoat it. It was hard. Like it was my yeah. first big shot. And I blame myself. I was like, why did we take that damn buyout offer? Like, why did I, mm -hmm. why did I get talked into this? I could have like cashed out and everybody would have been happy. And here I have to lay off all my employees. Like this is like brutal, you know? So and, that and I think, buyout offer though, was that the one, the 60 million acquisition offer? Yeah. So we got 60 million uh, wow. offer. We, we literally, the founders owned half the company. So we would have split 30 million, which is great for our first startup. We would have been like, you yeah. know, in the catbird seat. I think 99% of the people listening in this show would be like, that's great, period, splitting 30 million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, walking away after a few years with 30 million would have been awesome. But yeah. it didn't happen that way. And I had to look back and, you know, you beat yourself up. You Like it was on the table. You could have just walked away. Um, but... Uh, you know, we were the kings then at that moment. And, mm -hmm. you know, hindsight is is perfect. So I was beating myself up. And then I came to a realization. It's really important for you entrepreneurs out there. Yeah. I found myself telling myself, I can't go through this again. I can't, I, you know, I let everybody down. I, I made that mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I was the CEO. It was my fault. You know, don't even do this. It's too painful. As soon as you say that, you are making your own destiny. You are literally right. telling yourself you can't do it again. You were a loser. You, uh, it was your fault. Instead of saying, 
And this, you really have, I caught myself saying this over and over. You're programming mm -hmm. yourself in a negative way. I caught my, and I caught myself and I say, no, if you say that, it's true. If you yeah. literally say, look, everybody screws up. I'm not infallible. I screwed up. What can I learn from this? And where can I take myself next? And honestly, yeah. if I hadn't done that, I would have just got a day job and I would have just been working in a day job the rest of my life. And um, that's really, really I, critical to reinforce there. I mean, I call it like, hey, I got to follow my own sword. I own it. I messed up. However, I ain't ever doing this again, you know, because I learned from it. Right. And, you know, it really helps. I outline this in my book, a lot of the key things. But look back at other entrepreneurs and what they've mm -hmm. actually done. Like Bill Gates's first venture didn't pan out. Like it was a flop. <laughs> You know, Steve yeah. Jobs, he launched the Newton, the Lisa, next computer really, you know, never Look became at a thing. Harrison from Hershey Chocolates. Didn't he have bankruptcy like 30 some times prior to Hershey Chocolate? And now we all eat Hershey's, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. In America. I, I'm so, telling you, you you can defeat yourself and mm -hmm. you can look at your first failure as a real failure, or you can just, you can keep moving forward. And I believe entrepreneurs aren't born that way. They're made that way. Yes, you are born with talent. Like some of us are born with like incredible mm -hmm. talents, but you can always get better. You can always improve. And I wouldn't uh, work with entrepreneurs, like mentoring them and coaching them and teaching them if I didn't truly believe that they, that there was something to be gained by that. Right, right. And I just Googled it to be factual on the show. Milton Hershey did not do 30 bankruptcies. He had two bankruptcies prior to coming okay. out with Hershey's. But that's still amazing. But I will, because I will tell you, it yeah. felt like 30. <laughs> it it felt, probably did, I'm exactly. Sure. So we, we have time, I think, for one final uh, question before we find out about how we can uh, get in contact with you. And you work with a lot of startups, okay? So you've seen a lot of failures. You've seen a lot of successes. What do you think are the main traits that define a successful entrepreneur? Oh, this is really important. I have three main traits that you, you have to possess. Number one, leadership. You, Got it. you know, you never build a big company. If you just want to do a solo thing, that's fine. But you never <laughs> build a billion dollar company or even a mid-sized company alone. <laughs> You have to get other people on board. So if you can't attract great talent, if you can't lead them, if you can't, if you don't have that ability to inspire right. people and get them going, then don't be the CEO, first of all. You could be an, uh, a co-founder, but don't be the CEO. You could be the right. tech lead or somebody at marketing or something else. Number two, just like we were talking about, perseverance. You yeah. need to stick with it because you're going to hit roadblock after roadblock. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong at some point. And if you, if you crumble at these mistakes, then you're just not going to make it. You know, there, there, one of the biggest regrets that I've had in my life is the perseverance part, okay? To where oh, yes. I give, you know, young, younger, more arrogant sales rep, I guess you could say, cocky, yeah. I'm working on stuff and yeah, I'm getting sales, but it's not going near the way that I wanted it to go. Meaning I'm not making as much results wise. And, you know, I give up and, you know, every time that has happened, I always find out, Oh, you know, that big multi-million dollar deal that you're working on. Yeah. Well, three months after you left, it closed. And it's like, that would have been, you know, 
a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of commissions for me. And that's where over the last seven years, I swore to myself, I'm never going to allow that to happen again. I am going to see things through as long as I can and wait it out. Eventually, there's going to be a call quit point, but you have to stick with it longer. So one of the most popular questions that entrepreneurs ask me is, when should I quit? Like, yeah, exactly. And this is a really tough. You outlined a one case, right, where you gave up too early. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, more entrepreneurs fail because they stick with an idea too long than because they quit. And when I say quit and perseverance, I don't mean sticking with something that isn't working. I mean right. figuring out what works and moving to that. So right, right, you right. always, you the really hard part for you and for everybody else is, am I making progress, right? Is, am I moving towards that goal I'm set? And mm-hmm. you, so you need to carefully vet out, like in your case with the big deals that are going to close, yep. you need... Uh, what uh, what I recommend is that you know you need to engage more deeply with those customers. You need to find yeah. out what's really in their head because that will give you the knowledge you need to know if you want to move forward with them or if you should cut loose, like a move to the next. Oh level. yeah, definitely. The problem the problem with being an entrepreneur is you all there's always hope, right? So mm-hmm. no matter how much your product isn't performing in the marketplace, you mm-hmm. can continue to hope that the next future that opium. Yes. And, and <laughs> I see entrepreneurs just like use all their money and go off a cliff because they refuse to change. They refuse yeah. to recognize that nobody really wants their product. Like <laughs> they yeah, think yeah, it's yeah, great, yeah. but nobody so out there true. wants it. So it's the hard part. I tell entrepreneurs is the hard part. You can't just make these decisions rationally. Like you say, a lot's at stake. You've invested a lot into this. Like it could be a huge payoff. You need to figure out whether it's a huge payoff or not. And that's the third criteria I have. Oh, it segues right nicely into that. And the yeah. third criteria is going deep. Like whatever you do, you can't stop at surface level data. Because if right. you stop at the surface, you just know what everybody else knows. And a lot of times right, you right. don't know enough. The entrepreneurs who truly succeed, they start, mm-hmm. they it, if they're in sales, they like penetrate so deep into their customer's psyches that they they are like seeing the world through their customer's eyes. And they like know how the company runs and they know the decision-making process. And they can clearly like pinpoint all the people they need to talk to. If it's their other customers that they're working with mm-hmm. who are buying their product, they know exactly why the customer is buying their product or they figure out why the customer isn't buying their product, which is usually the case, like yeah. what is stopping them? And so they can make specific, they aren't shooting in the dark with random features, random changes, mm-hmm. you know, praying that something works out. They they are actually investigating deeply. So those three criteria are really important. You know, if you can f- combine all of those leadership, you know, mm-hmm. stamina, and then really going deep on whatever your business is, th- that combination is the winning uh, formula for entrepreneurs. And that is awesome. Hey, this has been an incredible, far-reaching interview. It, it's amazing in 30 to 40 minutes how many different content, uh, different topics we can discuss in a good amount of detail, isn't it? We covered a lot. Yes. Yes. And I love discussing. So I'll be happy to come back anytime and go deep on anything. Definitely. (laughs) Later this year, I'll definitely get you back onto the show. But in the meantime, for everybody out there on YouTube, listening on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever they're at, consuming this interview, 
How can they reach out and digitally stalk you? You can reach out and digitally stalk me. First of all, you can go to Founderspace and email me. Uh, they yeah. forward all the emails addressed to me. To me, you can yeah. also. I'm on every social network. I'm on Instagram. I'm on the new Clubhouse. I'm yeah. on you know Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. LinkedIn, Tik. I'm yeah TikTok. Everything. Just search for Founderspace. Founderspace. So go to Founderspace. Look me up if you want to get my books. Uh, they're also just on Founderspace. Super okay. easy to find. That's great. We'll have a link to Founderspace down in the description anywhere that you're watching or listening to this interview. Stephen, hey, thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazing. And I can't wait to get you back on this show later this year. Thank you. It's been no, a pleasure. Thanks. Cheers. Wow, that was an awesome chat with Steve, right? First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor, smash that like button, smash that subscribe button. Help us grow the community. I swear, over the past month, we have actually grown by over 1,700 subscribers. We are on a roll. I cannot wait until we break the 10,000 subscriber threshold. And that will only happen if you all do me a solid. Share this interview out. Share it to your network. Make them aware of Shark Bite Biz and how we come out with two amazing episodes every Monday and every Thursday with some of the biggest, brightest minds out there in business, like today's guest, Steve Hoffman. Okay, so share this out there. Share it at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you want. I don't care. I would love nothing more than to see Steve Hoffman and Shark Bite Biz trending. Now, let's get back to our rock star guest, Steve. Some great, great points and awesome conversation, like I was saying in the introduction. You know, it is funny how passions when we are kids change and impact who we are as an adult. Okay, look at Captain Hoff's story. He loved film, video, gaming, and his dad, rightfully, I must say, said that computers are the futures and that you should study that. He did. And, you know, what he did was amazing. But ultimately, when it came down to him picking what he had to do for graduate school, he picked what he was in love with and went for film. I'm having that same exact uh, discussion right now with my son, Pancho, who actually is the producer of this show right now. He's about to graduate high school and he's thinking about college degree. And he loves doing all this video editing stuff. And as you've seen on most of our shows, he's pretty darn good at it. He's got the skills. Problem is the industry is being diluted. Why? Bunch of independent creators like us. It's in demand. Younger age people are self-taught. They're able to do it. Brings down salaries. So it's kind of like when we're talking like, Let's pick something else and we can always have this kind of be a backup for you. That being said, we, we just can't deny what he loves and what he's passionate about, what he adores. Even if he picks something else for college, at some point in his life, the love of video editing and creating all this stuff is going to call to him again. And chances are he's going to jump on that opportunity because whatever he does between now and then won't be his true love. 
So I totally get where Steve's coming from with the story that he was telling us. People like to say, you know, that crypto does nothing. You know, I, I see a lot of memes out there like, oh, can you explain what crypto actually does? Brandon, good friend of mine. I'm not going to say your last name. You know who you are. <laughs> you're, you're like the biggest crypto denier. And yeah, you can deny crypto if you want, but you can't deny its value and its perceived value. And you've got to play that game a little bit, you know, do it carefully, but everybody should be in it somehow. And the blockchain is such a powerful tool that, you know, it came out with crypto and it does solve some very real problems. That being said, Steve does bring up an excellent point that I think crypto fanboys or fangirls oftentimes forget. Blockchain isn't always the best solution for everything. Have decentralized systems work for some stuff? Yes but it doesn't work for everything. And people are finding that out right now. It really comes down to a case-by-case -case situation or maybe an industry-by-industry -industry situation or use-case scenario to figure out, is it a fit? Isn't it a fit? And, you know, he had a really interesting take as far as NFTs are concerned. I believe with Steve, and I'm on the same boat, NFTs are hype over substance, but that doesn't mean that there isn't value to owning something that is on the blockchain. Again, it comes down to a, you know the use case scenarios and if it really makes sense. Remember, this is not financial advice. And full disclosure, I do own NFTs, limited ones. You know, I own Strasser.crypto, PassMeYear.crypto, Strasser.eth, and a couple of the other things. But no way in heck am I going to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a piece of digital artwork, a GIF or whatever it may be to get it on the blockchain. To me, that is insane. I think there are way better use cases for NFTs and for them to hold value. Buying digital artwork, I don't think that's the use case. Lastly, Steve's big realization. Don't make your own destiny by saying you can't do something, okay? Don't program yourself in a negative way. Laws of attraction, we've talked about this on the show so often. You know, you mess up, it's okay. Fall on your sword. Learn you messed up. Grow from there, but that does not define you. You just have to own it and move on. Learn from it. That was an amazing interview with Steve. That was just totally jam-packed. Make sure you grab both his books. He's sending them to me. They haven't arrived yet, but Make Elephants Fly and Surviving a Startup. Both great books. Check them out. Solid info. And, you know, everything he does is always about getting better, always improving, and always having, I guess you can call it almost like CPM, the continuous ma uh, performance management. You're always trying to do that with you yourself because it does. It starts with you. Question of the day. When did you last fall on your sword and learn from it and grow? I'd love to hear those stories down below on YouTube. If you want to be on the show, shoot an email out. Interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. 
Don't forget, if you're watching on YouTube, hit that little join button. For only $3 a month, you can support the show and become a baby shark. Now, don't forget, though, too, you can also go to deadhousecoffee.com. Use code SHARK at 20% off your purchase. Right. 20% of any purchase you make. And in addition to that, you will be helping this show grow. You'll be able to main, help us maintain all the tech and costs that go around with producing two episodes a week. So please show us some love. And you all know this by now, but I'm David Strasser. This is Shark Bite Biz. We'll see you all next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story.